Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Judges 6, verses 3 and 4, and 11 to 16. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But then now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Wonderful. Thank you, Ella. Hello, everyone. Uh, good morning. Fantastic to be together again. Uh, my name is Rich. I'm going to be taking us through this next part uh, of our time together. Um, and as some of you will know, recently I became a dad. Um, and uh, my son, Zach, is out in the foyer having a great time, I think, with his mum. Uh, he is uh, two months old uh, now. And uh, the thing about this stage of his life, which uh, isn't a surprise, you get plenty of warning, there's plenty of time to kind of come to terms with it, um, but it still hits you like a train, um, is that at this stage of his life, he is 100% need. Um, We get a little bit back, you know, he started to kind of smile a little bit, he giggles a little bit. Um, That's wonderful if you want to enjoy some of that, come and hang out with us after the service. Um, You may get that, you might not get that as well, no guarantees. Um, But his main currency uh, at the moment is in basically just being cute. Um, Everything else uh, is need, Uh, it's food uh, and sleep sometimes, um, and endless nappy changes and lots of vomit to clear up as well. And these past few months have been this uh, bizarre experience of life just suddenly changing uh, and becoming entirely and totally oriented around this tiny human being who knows nothing other than his need in the moment, Uh, who knows nothing other than the fact that uh, the world as he experiences it revolves around him. Uh, That's the entirety uh, of his experience of relationships so far, the way he relates to Jules uh, and to me and to everyone else, I need this uh, and you're going to provide it for me. And that's okay, because he is a baby. Um, And that's kind of what he does at this point in his life. And in time, he'll uh, grow up and he'll learn that relationships aren't always like that. Um, They're a two-way street. There's give and take. Friendships, marriages, co-workers, housemates, um, where these relationships are mature and healthy, They're based on a mutual understanding that the world doesn't revolve around us. 
that sometimes we don't get our own way. At two months old, uh, kind of screaming and waving his arms around pretty much gets him whatever he wants, uh, even if it takes us a few tries to figure out exactly what that is. At 20 years old, that's probably not going to cut it quite so much. But you know, so often in my relationship with God, I relate to him like Zach relates to me and Jules. When things are going well, when I have everything that I think I need, be that health or security or money or status, I am the happy baby, smiling and giggling away. I'm not quite as cute uh, as Zach, but not too bad. When things aren't going well, it exposes a heart within me that is working uh, on the assumption that God is there to make my life better, uh, that his role in my life is to make everything run smoothly on this kind of upward trajectory uh, towards ever-increasing happiness uh, and comfortableness and ease. And that when that's not my reality, it's so easy for me, internally at least, to revert to the screaming, arm-waving child in how I relate to God. And you know, I think this is a challenge for all of us who are seeking to become mature followers of Jesus, who are trying to figure out what it looks like to grow in our relationship with God. The constant battle against this uh, nagging assumption away in the back of my mind that isn't God there just to make everything easy? And the constant learning and relearning that to mature in my relationship with him isn't about him giving me more stuff or instantly transforming my circumstances when they're less than ideal, as wonderful as it is when he generously and graciously does that. It's about me understanding more of what it is that he has given of himself supremely in the person of Jesus and daily through the presence of his spirit to build me into a community of faith where we walk together and encourage one another in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Whatever we're walking through, that we grow in the knowledge and understanding and trust that he is with us, that he is enough, and that he changes everything. And that's the lesson that Gideon and the Israelites are learning uh, through the story that begins with the section that Ella so wonderfully read out for us. The Israelites, the people of God in the Old Testament, have been miraculously brought into the promised land. This is how the story starts. They are in a home full of abundant life and goodness, having been a people who've known nothing but slavery and wandering in the wilderness for generations. And yet, all too quickly, they've forgotten the one who led them there. They've forgotten the one who did all of the work to bring them out of everything they were living with and into everything that he had for them. Rather than looking to God as the source of all light and life and peace, they've begun to worship the gods of their neighbors. They've begun to stray away from the goodness that he has for them. And the result has been death and darkness and despair. 
And the book of Judges has this constant refrain that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That morality for them had become individual. Right and wrong, good and bad, true and false, love and hate is just whatever anyone thinks or feels at any given time. My wants, my needs at the center of the universe. And the result has been chaos. Their communities have begun to fracture apart in division and dysfunction, violence, oppression and misery has become commonplace. There's internal anarchy and external assault. These enemy groups have appeared and they've sprung up and been raiding the land, devouring whatever the Israelites produce, leaving them starving and surrounded. And that's where we find Gideon. That's the context where we start this story. It's a dark time in the history of Israel. And here's Gideon threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press. Um, I don't know how much you know about uh, farming in ancient Israel, but uh, as a general rule, um, that's about as bad a place to thresh wheat as you can get. So ideally, what you want is somewhere nice and high up, somewhere that is open to the wind, so that as you beat the grains, uh, the chaff, the bad stuff, um, gets blown away because it's really light, and the heavier grains, the good stuff that gets turned into flour, gets left behind, falls to the ground, and you can collect it up. That's where the expression, uh, separate the wheat from the chaff, comes from. Uh, but a wine press uh, looks something like this. It's going to appear on the screen. Uh, it is a hole in the ground carved into the stone. Uh, it's low down. Uh, it's cramped. It is sheltered from the wind, which means that for Gideon, uh, it is back-breaking manual labor um, to break apart the grains by hand. Uh, and then it's painstaking monotony to separate the wheat from the chaff piece by piece. And yet, such is the sense of chaos and danger in the land, that seems like a good option to him. The fear that has gripped Gideon and his whole community has infected every area of day-to-day -day life. It's colored and covered everything about the way that he's living. And then, as we heard, God shows up. He comes in the person of the angel of the Lord. He sits under a tree nearby while Gideon works. And then he calls out uh, in verse 12, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And it's fair to say that Gideon's response to that isn't entirely positive. And you can understand why. You can picture him there, tool in hand, sweat running down his face, the threat of enemies appearing at any moment, and now an interruption. Mighty hero, are you joking? Can't you see where I am and what I'm doing? The Lord is with me. Are you sure? Haven't you seen what's going on here? Don't you know what it's been like for us? And his cynicism boils over the pressure of all that he's living with, the toil of the day-to-day -day grind pours out. It's not that Gideon has a problem believing in God. It's that he has a problem believing that God is for him. Does anyone else feel like that? I do sometimes. 
But God isn't put off, put out. He speaks again. Go with the strength you have, he says, and make a difference. Go and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But again, Gideon comes back. My Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe, and I'm the least of my entire family. I'm the bottom of the ladder, the weakest person in the weakest family, in the weakest tribe, in a nation which is falling apart. Surely you've got this wrong. Surely with all of the problems that we're living with, you can find someone better suited to this. Surely you can't be expecting someone like me to make a difference. His insecurities are on full display. A man who knows his weakness and just can't see a way that God would want to use someone like him. Again, anyone else feel like that? Yep, my hand's in the air again. But God's response is the same place he started. I will be with you. And that's the promise that's given that I'd like to focus on this morning. If you read on Judges chapter 6, you can find out what happens next. But it's this word to Gideon, I will be with you, that I want us to draw out a little bit more. There are three things in particular. First one, God meets us in the ordinary. God meets us in the ordinary. He breaks into Gideon's life in the midst of his sweat-soaked daily grind. And it's all too easy for me to miss the fact that this is usually how God meets with us. It's easy to remember at the burning bush that we looked at last week, the fire and the flare of that. Or imagine God breaking in with a booming voice. But actually, more often than not, in the Bible, let alone in our lives, God shows up on what feels like an average day in everyday locations to people who don't seem to have anything particularly extraordinary about them. Not to monarchs in their palaces or to great military leaders in their command tents or to great philosophers in their schools of wisdom but to ordinary men and women going about daily life. Those are the places that God has always been at work amongst his people. God's provision is shown and God's purposes come most often, not through dramatic events for famous people, but in millions of small ways, as millions of seemingly insignificant people live out their lives. God's big story is not usually revealed by extraordinary people doing exceptional things, but by ordinary people in everyday situations. And sure, there are going to be some dramatic events in Gideon's life. But where he meets God, where he hears and receives God's promise to him, I will be with you, couldn't be more mundane, couldn't be more normal. And I find that incredibly liberating for me because it means that I don't need to feel like I've made it before God can meet with me or use me 
will be at work in my life. God is at work in this situation. He's at work in the life of Gideon, huddled away in the wine press. In the midst of the challenges faced by the Israelites, even the ones they've inflicted on themselves, and he's at work in the lives of you and me. So if you ever feel ordinary in a world that champions and celebrates the extraordinary, and I frequently do, just know that that means you are in exactly the right place to meet with God. God meets us in the ordinary. Second thing, God is more concerned about his work in us than his work through us. It turns out, dealing with the external challenges facing the Israelites, the enemy armies and their thousands, was actually pretty easy for God. Uh, we see later in the story, he manages it with a handful of people uh, armed with candles and trumpets. It turns out that bit wasn't actually all that hard. Where the work really started was tackling everything going on in Gideon. For God, defeating armies is small fry. Defeating the fear and the cynicism and the insecurity that Gideon is living with, that's where the rubber really hits the road. And one of the reasons that I've been really looking forward to speaking on this passage but also uh, really nervous about doing so, is because I see so much of myself in Gideon. I see my instinct, like his, to live uh, with that baby mindset where my reaction to things around me not being how I want them to be is to hunker down in fear, to find my own version of the wine press to escape into. My instinct to respond with cynicism because really, I'm scared of what it might mean for me to step forward with faith into all that God has for me in case it upsets my comfortable existence. My instinct to let my insecurities sow seeds of doubt that my flaws and my failures and my fragilities are so great that there's no way that God could want to use me. So how does God work? in Gideon's life. He sends him, not with an air-filled platitude, I'll be with you so everything will be easy, I'll sort it out, you take a seat, put your feet up. He doesn't send him with a, a Disney-style, self-motivational quote, you've got the strength for this, just believe in yourself. <laughs> he sends him with a two-part, double-sided promise. I'm sending you in the strength that you have, and I will be with you. You bring what you've got, and I'll be with you. And like two faces of a coin, they're two words that can't be separated from one another, because the promise itself is precisely how God does his work in Gideon. The two go together because it's the promise of his presence with us that generates the transformation in us. It's God's word to us that creates his work in us. It's not about us drumming up the self-motivation to do the things that we think we should be doing or to believe the things that we think we should be believing. 
It's about us receiving the word that God has already spoken and learning day by day, moment by moment, that the promise he has already made, that he is sending us and that he is with us, is what does the work in us. God's word to us creates his work in us. It's not our own action or our own effort or our own energy. And the invitation of this passage is that if you identify in any way with what I feel, any sense that your relationship with God is too often based on everything going smoothly in your life, any ways in which fear or cynicism or insecurity are stopping you from stepping into the good of everything that he has for you in the midst of the ups and downs of life. What you need is this promise, a promise to inhabit, a promise that is given that it might be so roomy and so spacious that everything else gets swallowed up as his word works in you and in me. That's what we mean when we say, as we often do at Oasis, that we are seeking to live with a rhythm of pausing, centering on God, and then continuing. It's not about artificially drumming up enthusiasm in ourselves in that moment. It's like, right, pause, okay, here we go, come on, believe harder. It's learning to rest in the word that's already been spoken the promise already given, trusting that that's what does the work in us, even when we can't feel it and even when we're struggling to believe it. That's why we're putting community together. We lift one another up. We walk together as we do it. And as you do that, you'll find that what's true for Gideon is true for you. The God who meets us in the ordinary place God whose priority is to work in us, will of course and has already been working through us too. Final thing is this. God goes with us in shoes on moments. Uh, Last week we looked at shoes off moments, moments where we uh, symbolically take our shoes off to uh, say to God, like Moses at the burning bush, that we're here to stay, we're not going anywhere. But as Adrian explained last week, it's also true that Moses couldn't stay at the burning bush. Part of what he received there was a commissioning to go and get on with the work that God had for him, knowing that God went with him. And it's the same for Gideon. He can't stay in the wine press. At this point, Gideon is as far from the mighty warrior that God calls him as you can imagine. But both God's work in Gideon and God's work through Gideon are achieved not through Gideon's effort, but through God's promise. And it's the same for us. If God can work through Gideon, hiding in a wine press, if he can work through Moses, a stuttering murderer, if he can work through Joseph, a slave tossed into jail, or Ruth, as we looked at last year, a penniless foreigner, or Esther, a woman in the most misogynistic culture imaginable, or Paul, a legality-driven Pharisee of Pharisees, or any of the disciples who basically are the most ragtag bunch of misfits you could ever come across. 
He can work in me and he can work in you. He's sending you and he's with you. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. God with us. He came not to give us an easy and comfortable life, but to reconcile us to himself, to be the very embodiment of that promise, the word becoming flesh, God's word spoken, I am with you. And to establish his kingdom through millions of normal people who in the quiet, ordinary work of the everyday will be scattering salt and light in the bland and the dark places they've been called to. People who in the monotony of endless email threads and countless small decisions will be dismantling systems and structures that lead to shame and oppression and ushering in paths to honor and freedom. People who will be noticing the ones nobody else sees, listening to the ones that nobody else hears, loving the ones nobody else remembers. Whether it's in your workplace or your home or your school or your recovery or your retirement, that's how the kingdom comes. That's what we're sent out to do. So the question I want to leave us with this morning, and we're going to close in just a moment's time, is this. What's the wine press in your life? What do you need to leave behind today? Is there any area of fear or cynicism or insecurity that you're living with that you just know you need God to work in? Do you need to hear again today that promise, I am with you? I need that. I need that. The moment I'm going to pray, it's going to be an opportunity for us to respond, for each of us uh, in our hearts to say to God in that moment, yes, I'm here. And to hear again that word spoken once more, that whatever we are facing, he is with us. And to receive it again as a community committed to walking with one another in the highs and lows of life. This is his good news to us. This is his word to us again this year. I am with you. And I am enough. If you're able, why don't you stand and stand together? Father, I thank you that you're not calling us to be all that. You're not calling us to be uh, all singing, all dancing, to have it all together. You say to us the words you said to Gideon, I'm sending you in the strength you have and I am with you. We bring what we can and we trust that you being with us takes care of the rest. Whether things are going well, or whether things are going badly. 
Father, we repent again in this moment. We turn around from all the ways in our lives when we give in to fear and cynicism and insecurity and we hide in the winepress behind the walls that we've built rather than stepping into the goodness of everything that you have for us. We heard that word to us in worship as well. And we say, Lord, we again in this moment receive your promise. I am with you. Trusting that that is what does the work in us. It's not our own strength. It's not our own energy. It's not our own effort. It is your word to us. Supremely shown in the life of Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again to bring us back to you. And so, Lord, we go from this place trusting again with whatever we have to bring, whatever tiny spark or flame of faith you've placed within us, that you go with us, that your promise is enough and that your presence is with us. Amen. Amen.